Justice Tech Pros here. Uh, we're on episode, um, this is episode 17. Uh, today I wanted to focus on another part of that series that I spoke about, Exhibit A on Netflix, and that's um, Touch DNA. But before we get into that, I just wanted to update on the uh, guest I was going to have on, Andrew Garrett. He, we were scheduled for the 8th, but I had to move that around, so we're going to most likely get to that next week. Uh, I think that's going to be an interesting and informative guest, and I'm looking forward to that dialogue. I think it's going to enlighten a lot of the listeners to the fact of how cell site technology is not so matter-of-fact and break it down on how it could be classified as a junk science. So that that should be uh, interesting information for uh, everybody listening. Um, I was watching this Exhibit A. It was part four called Touch DNA. And, you know, really, it was fascinating because it goes back down the road of everything I kind of spoke about where if you have science and you have uh, experts where it relates to the criminal justice system, it's very important to really analyze what the experts on the state side or on the government side is claiming. Because if it goes uncountered or uh, you know, untouched or without a response on the defense side, it could do a lot of damage because it leaves it leaves a lot open and it leaves the judge and the jurors believing that everything that the government witness is saying and the government expert is saying is accurate, when in fact there could be a lot of flaws and a lot of errors that can take place. And if you don't know to dive into that and exploit that and uncover that, you know, it could do a lot of damage to the defense. And this episode, you know, it goes into a specific um, case that took place, and I'll get into that. But when it starts off, they really just start talking about how with touch DNA, which it was a bit of an educational experiment experience for me as well. Touch DNA is basically when somebody touches something. And they were going into how there's a lot of fault in that and there could be a lot of problems with that because with touch DNA, as one would imagine, you know, they gave an example of like a door handle, you know, a lot of people could touch that same door handle. And when you're looking to isolate just one of the DNAs that are uh, one of the DNA samples that may be included in that on that door handle, it could be very challenging to isolate that and pick that out without it getting affected by everyone else who happened to touch it. And um, the show goes on to talk about um, how a, an individual was convicted based on touch DNA analysis. And I'm going to dive into that, but some of the um, initial things that's, that stuck out to me is when the expert who was just an isolated expert, he had nothing to do with one side or the other, he was pretty much just explaining that it gets very complicated with touch DNA and he compared it to almost to like initially listening to two songs. He said if you put on a, a, a headphone and you're listening to two different songs playing at the same time and it's not being played at 50% each song. In other words, you have one song that maybe you hear 80% of it and in the background you hear 20% of the other song. And he kept compiling that and adding to that and saying, now if you had a third song and a fourth, fourth song, it gets very difficult to hear which song is what, you know, to, to pick apart all four songs. You, you only may 
make out three songs or two songs. And it was a great visual and a great common sense way of putting it to explain how touch DNA is not an exact science. And he went on to explain that, you know, they had, um, when they have a, an established DNA, that was like the gold standard, you know, where they would use saliva and semen and blood. And that's a very matter of fact DNA, that type of DNA. It's, um, you know, very accurate. And law enforcement, for some reason, started getting obsessed with the touch DNA and items being touched and items being handled, when in fact that's one of the faults of DNA and the whole science of DNA. The touch DNA is nowhere near as strong as like a secretion. And when they, the problem is the general public just hears DNA and they assume it's all related. So you'll think of, you know, how matter of fact DNA is. When in reality, it's a lot different. You know, there's different types. When you have a, uh, a fluid DNA, such as blood, such as saliva, it's, it's way different than analyzing touch DNA. And law enforcement is really pulling on touch DNA, and it's confusing jurors, and it's actually putting innocent people away because they're messing, they're messing with the science. You know, they took a, a gold standard of DNA, and they're almost diluting it now by introducing this touch DNA. And I just found that extremely interesting. And, and, and once again, it just goes back to how, you know, when they target somebody, they'll switch things around to the forefront. They'll make certain evidence more important. And they'll focus, if they have nothing else, they'll focus on this touch DNA. And it's really flawed. And there's a, there's a few clips, as I did with the last episode, that I'm going to want to play and insert excerpts here and there that kind of relate and then talk about them. And this one jumped out at me immediately. And I, I played a segment of it. And one of the earlier episodes, but it's definitely worth a replay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play that now. The problem with DNA is that if you have a science that is misunderstood, that science becomes like magic. It gets the power of magic. And that's what makes it very, very dangerous. And again, you know, I've said it in a in a prior episode, but that statement really says so much, you know, when you have a science that the general public doesn't really understand, uh, the prosecution and the government could use that and manipulate that to almost capitalize on the uneducated juror who doesn't know any better and even the, the judge who doesn't know any better. They can manipulate it to appear much more powerful than it really is. And that truly is dangerous. And it does become like magic. Because it's not a science, it's a junk science, but they're, used, they're painting it as scientific and matter-of-fact when it's not. And that's extremely dangerous when somebody's life's on the line. And along the same lines, there was another quote um, from a forensic DNA analyst in the movie. And I don't even want to paraphrase it, I want to play it because it was also powerful and it just it's, it's scary in what he says. So I'm going to play that bit for you. Forensic DNA analysts, where if you were to give 10 DNA analysts the same DNA profile, you're going to get 11 different opinions. So, I don't think that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the problem. You know, and you actually hear the interviewer on the other end say, I don't think that's a joke. And it's so true. It's not a joke, you know. And the guy says, I know, that's the problem. Because 
that's ridiculous. Imagine that you have 10 different, and I'm sure he's exaggerating, but he's just trying to make a point. In other words, if you have a few different analysts looking at the same DNA, the, the touch DNA, and they get all different results, that's a major, major problem. And without the defense introducing their expert and their witness to counteract with the government and the states putting on, you're getting convicted. That's really the bottom line, and that's what happened in this case study that they did on the show. The gentleman wound up getting convicted. Again, an innocent man wound up getting convicted. And um, I'll go into exactly how that played out, but I just wanted to start it with setting the tone on the whole DNA issue and how when you start diving into it and you start understanding it, it's not as matter-of-fact as one would think. And before I got involved... um, in my industry and really started understanding cases and understanding the science behind things, I too always felt, you know, if it's DNA, it's 100%. And that's, um, you know, that's one of the uh, scientific studies and analysis that when they come out and if it matches, you have a problem because it's so accurate. And the more you dive in, you have to understand that there's different types of DNA testing. And nobody really understands that. Nobody knows there's a difference between touch DNA and and fluid DNA, that, that all needs to be explained. And obviously, you know, the, the prosecution and the state side and the government side, they're not going to explain those things. That's not what they're there for. They're there to fight their case. But if the defense doesn't do it or if the defense is, is limited, that's a huge problem. That's a case that's swinging the case into a total different direction where you're not able to put on a proper defense. Now, that same expert that I just played, he actually goes on to talk about how they're taking legitimate um, science, uh, uh, sturdy science, and turning it into a junk science by manipulating it and playing around with the different types of DNA. And I want to play a quote. How much can you interpret with it? This is basically turning a rock-solid science into junk science. See, and what he's saying is when they start manipulating it and they start adding things and they start focusing on this touch DNA, and even though it's not that accurate, but they paint it under the picture of the umbrella of DNA testing rather than segment it out, rather than show that there, there are different types of DNA testing and some are stronger than others, they lump it into the one umbrella and they paint it for the jury and they paint it for the judge that this is DNA testing and it's uh, very accurate, it's 99% accurate, this is the individual. They don't really go down that road. They don't get into that aspect of it of where they're separating which DNA they're testing for. So when they come in and they present their case, it's being lumped into that umbrella of the powerful rock-solid DNA science when in reality it's not. It's a segmented part that isn't as strong. And, and you know, it gets very confusing for the jury. And when, when a jury gets confused or a juror gets confused, you have a problem. One thing you, you do not want to have happen is have a juror that's confused about what's being presented in front of them because odds are if they're confused, they're going to side with the government and they're going to side with the state. That's just normally how it's going to play out. They're not going to side with the defense even though technically they should because the burden of proof is on the government and the burden of proof is on the state, just the way I've seen it play out in court, they're not going to. So it's it's vital to make sure before you start presenting your cl- case, you have a clear-cut direction of how you're going to explain things that may be a little 
a bit of a gray area or hard to understand, you do have to come up with a game plan on how to make explain these things in layman's terms, easy to understand, so they grasp concepts and they're not lost in a um, in a DNA expert using specific lingo, specific terminology to confuse them and throw them off and painting things very adamant and very factual when in fact they're not. And what really bothered me about this particular case is the judge would not allow the defense's expert. The judge gave an excuse that the defensive the defense's expert didn't have a, a certain degree. But yet the state's expert was a kid right out of school, and I'm going to play an excerpt to explain it in detail, but the kid was like 25 years old. The defense's expert had 20 years of experience, if not longer, and the judge wouldn't allow their expert. And I, and I cannot ha- wrap my head around that concept, how the government's allowed to produce an expert, they're allowed to explain their side of the evidence, in this case, the DNA touch evidence, But the defense wants to equally have the opportunity to lay out the exact same case only in opposition to explain how faulty it is, and the judge doesn't allow that. You know, and that shows right there alone how a judge could pretty much get the verdict he or she wants. They could limit what's allowed in and what isn't allowed in and make the trial go in a specific direction. And that's the misconception that people have, the general public, where they think you're getting a fair trial. All of these elements that could take place prevent you from getting a fair trial. This is a prime example of that. You have a judge who now takes away your expert. You are not getting a fair trial. You just took a massive blow that prevents you from trying your case the way that you strategize to do so. And I've spoken about this in the past, and it played out... In many cases, and now when I was watching this, it played out in this case as well. And at the end, uh, this individual who was innocent wound up being found guilty. And this all led up to that. All these things led up to it. And they're showing how now, which is really sad and unfortunately how it usually plays out, after the fact, you have to now go back and reopen these things on appeal. You have to revisit these things that if they were ruled on properly in the first place, The defendant wouldn't even be in this position. But now a defendant gets found guilty because they didn't get a fair trial. Now they have to go for more money, more time, more time away from their family to appeal their case just to reiterate and to re-argue what they already argued. Because they didn't have a fair judge, now they have to start all over again and they got to go to an appellate uh, court. On the federal level, you have three judges looking at it, so you have to hope that you get three, you know, uh, fair and partial judges. But meanwhile, all of this you already tried to present during your case and you were limited. You weren't allowed to. So you had to sit there, get found guilty, and now wait for your second bite at the apple. And none of that is justice, no matter how you twist it and turn it. But if you look at it logically, none of it makes sense. All of these things should be argued in the first place and should be allowed in the first place and then let the jury hear it. Don't limit what the jury's hearing. When you do that, you have an agenda, you have an angle. You're trying to get a conviction. That's the bottom line. And that's extremely disturbing. And I I just want to play the defense's expert's take on uh, what happened. I was 
was asked to come into this case to review the DNA work that had been performed. I had been practicing forensic science for 25, 26 years, but the judge said that they were excluding me as an expert because I did not have an advanced degree. Now, the state's expert had just graduated from college, and he was about 25 years old. I was very upset by it because Mr. Herskovic was denied the opportunity to have an expert speak at his trial on his behalf, someone who was going to expose all of the shortcomings in this case. I mean, that, that says a mouthful right there. You know, he explains how this guy had, and, and I underestimated his experience earlier. I said he had 20 years. He had 25, 26 years experience. And you're going to say he's not capable and he's not uh, an allowable expert for the defense, but you're going to allow somebody right out of school who pretty much has no experience in this type of field, one would think experience weighs a lot more heavily than a certificate hanging on the wall in classroom training. You you know, you would want somebody with experience. It's like anything else in life. You, you want somebody who's experienced. They could have all the training in the world. If they're not experienced, they're not going to have the hands-on, reality-based knowledge that one needs. And because of that, they don't allow the defense to put on a defense. And, and things like that is really what should wake up the general public and have them sit up in their chairs and really see that something's not right. Something is not just. Things are happening here with agendas. And when they walk into that courtroom, there's a lot going on that um, they may not be aware of. And, you know, maybe that's what jurors need to do. Where They need to think, well, why isn't there a defense expert? You know, and maybe that'll open their eyes to they were limited. They, didn't, they weren't allowed to put in because that's what would make sense. If you don't see an expert for the defense side, that should tip somebody off that something happened. And, and what the case was about, to get a little into that, there was a, um, a gentleman uh, by the name of Mayor Herskowitz. And he was accused of being part of a beating on a poor individual. Um, he was beat up in Williamsburg, New York by 12, 12 guys. Uh, it was in a Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and 12 individuals uh, beat this guy up. And it was like a hate crime. He was an African-American and they beat him up and they charged this. Um, they beat him up really bad. I mean, they broke his eye socket really terrible. I mean, just think about that 20, 20 men punching and kicking somebody. You're going to do a lot of damage. The victim name, the victim's name was Taj Patterson. And, uh, this happened back in 2016. And, uh, again, they charged this, uh, Mayor Hershkowitz with the crime based on what happened was in the video, uh, there was a video of the beating. It was a grainy uh, surveillance video. And you see 20 men around this poor guy and they're beating him. And somebody took his sneaker off, took the victim's sneaker off and they threw it. And one of the uh, detectives or the investigator on the scene went around to all the buildings. He saw that they threw the sneaker up high. So he went on top of all the rooftops to find the sneaker. 
And when they got the sneaker, that's where they started testing for DNA and they found this touch DNA. And when they ran it, the touch DNA, they they uh, allegedly got a, a match for this Mayor Herskowitz. But as you start uh, watching the show and, and understanding what took place, it really wasn't a match. What they got was um, a sample of this DNA. And the way I understood it, they got this one sample and they fed it through their system. It wasn't, it wasn't a good enough sample to, to uh, duplicate. So they had to artificially replicate the sample, which in itself sounds like something's off, where they're replicating a sample because it wasn't a big enough piece, so they artificially um, duplicate it. And the way they explain it is like a copy of a copy. And as you know, as you start copying things, the quality of it goes lower and lower. Now, what's ironic is um, before the test results came back, you know, the guy Mayer was the first one to volunteer his DNA because he knew he didn't do it. He wanted his DNA tested. He figured that would clear him. And little did he know, it came back where it was tying him in to this case. And as the as the episode develops, what wound up happening, it seems as though they targeted this individual because one of the gentlemen who is responsible for the beating was the brother of a very powerful individual in the Hasidic Orthodox community over there. Apparently, the family donated a lot to the NYPD and a lot to the precinct. So the way the episode plays out, they were trying to steer the evidence away from who is really responsible, and they put this guy on the hook. And it seemed like they targeted him from what it seemed because within the community, this guy, Mayor, really wasn't active. He was almost like an outcast. So it, it almost, the way the episode laid it out is, is it appeared that they targeted this guy to serve as the scapegoat. And what's scary is when they were going, you know, throughout the episode, they dive into the uh, the touch DNA on different on different levels. And one explanation that I was thinking about was um, the individual stated when you shake hands for some, with somebody, you automatically transfer some of your skin cells, touch DNA. And now if that person goes and loads up a gun or does something, the odds of your DNA being on that gun or being, uh, you know, uh, located wherever that person is, if they commit a crime, are pretty good. A and how scary and frightening is that? You're shaking somebody's hand and then next thing you know, you could be indicted based on touch DNA transferring. And that's why they don't really, um, they don't use that as the gold standard of DNA. You know, it's the fluids, as I was talking about earlier, that's really where uh, the focus should be. And now that they shied away from that and are going towards this touch DNA, a lot of mistakes are happening. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of errors. And um, the, the way they, they explained it on the show, they said they took one decent sample and they turned it into three shitty samples. And the results were chaotic. All DNA samples from criminal cases in New York City, it goes to the acronym OSMI, which... Um, it's the office of the chief medical examiner, OCME, and they're referring to as the OSME uh, department. And uh, it's the largest forensic DNA lab in the world, and they process all of that. And so when they, when they fed it through the system, that's where they started to spit out the results. And what happens is they have what's called a program 
this OSME had a program, and the program is called FST. And when they, they fed the information through the program, they get statistics. So now they, cha- they almost changed it from where it's DNA to statistical data. And I'm going to play a little excerpt on that, which explains that process. And it's important. I want you to hear that. And then there are other complications. Usually you get mixtures, meaning more than one person's DNA is on that sample. OCME was under a lot of pressure to put a statistic on their mixture samples. So they developed this software program in-house, the FST program. FST is a software program that the OCME used to put a number on complicated DNA samples. So with Mayer or any other suspect's case, this software program will spit out a number, a likelihood ratio that the defendant is in the mixture. But here's the thing, there's no ground truth with likelihood ratios in complicated DNA mixtures. I think every case where FST was used is problematic, and some of the most famous scientists in the world say the same thing. So now just to, to break that down, what she's saying is that this OSME, um, they fed the information through this program called FST, and then this FST spits out statistical data which then uh, will will point to an individual. But there's no ground basis for that data. It's pretty much made-up data. And what, what was ironic is at the end of the show, they explain how now the chief um, examiner's office doesn't use MS, FST any longer. They discontinued it. And obviously the reason they discontinued it is because it's nonsense. It's not reality. It's not, it's not factual. But of course they can't say that it's flawed. They're not going to say that because think about that. If they say now it's flawed, they convicted, I don't know, from the way she made it sound, hundreds of people, if not thousands, based on that software. So now if they admit that that software is fraudulent or inaccurate, all those people, which rightfully so, should be released, you know, get a new trial. So they're not going to do that. They're just going to say we're discontinuing usage of it. And you figure that alone would blow up. I mean, I don't understand how there's not more media attention around that. If they were using a software to convict people that's spitting out statistics that now they feel they're not going to use anymore. I don't know how people aren't fighting the fact, well, why aren't you using it anymore? And proving that it's fraudulent. And then opening, you know, opening up the doors to free those that were put in jail based on this software and the statistical data that is is not accurate. Now here's an excerpt from the attorney during trial uh, for the defendant. His name is Israel Freed. They call him Izzy. And I just want to play his take on what they did, you know, when they brought in the expert from OCMA. They had to give this DNA the weight it needed as the smoking gun, if you will, as the as the sentinel evidence in this case needed to convict men. They got an examiner from the OCME to come to court, and that examiner admitted on cross-examination all the issues and the problems with the test and the analysis. Like, they didn't even try to hide that because they couldn't. What they said is that despite all that, you don't understand what it is that we do, and we're able to do something that nobody else can do to get the results that we got, and our results are sound. 
It's completely bullshit, is what it is. But it was accepted in this case to convict man. So basically, you know, the defense attorney got the um, supposed expert to admit of all the faulties of the program, but they still were allowed to testify and pretty much push it off as a sound science when in fact it wasn't, just to get their conviction. And, you know, it all goes back to what, you know, what they'll do to get that conviction. They'll never admit they're wrong. They'll never admit they have the wrong guy. They're going to see it through to the end just to get the conviction. And they'll bend things and move things around to make it fit the case. Rather than free an innocent man, they'd just rather be right. Rather than admit they were wrong and free somebody innocent, they want to be right. And so they'll go by all means necessary to prove their case. Even if it is filled with smoke, mirrors, and illusions, they're going to do it just to prove their case. And now his, uh, this is an excerpt from his uh, appellate uh, lawyer where you know she's working on the appeal and she's talking about how the statistics are pretty much nonsense. He gives us one in 133. I bet if we tested any other member of the Hasidic community, you would get at least one in 133. Same results, different person, same illusion of science when there's really nothing but statistics. The first thing that I... So, so what she's saying is that those test results pointed to her client, but she's saying she would bet they would point to any other member of the Hasidic community with those statistics because it was statistical analysis. It had really nothing to do with the DNA aspect. They fed it through their system so they could get statistical data because they didn't have strong DNA evidence. So what did they do? They manipulated it. They changed it to fit their narrative. Their narrative was to find this gentleman guilty, this Meyer, uh, this Mayor Herskovic. They wanted to convict him, so they manipulated everything to allow that to happen. They introduced it as statistical data as opposed to DNA, but they painted it under the DNA premise. And that's what they do, and it even sounds confusing as you start explaining it, and that's the problem in and of itself. Look how confusing it's getting, and I'm able to sit back and analyze it and explain it. Imagine hearing these things play out in the courtroom. And if you don't even have another side that's that's showing the inaccuracies, you're dead to rights. You don't stand the chance. And she goes on, uh, his um, appellate lawyer, Donna Aldia is her name, and she goes on to just talk about how statistics basically took away his freedom. And I want to play that uh, excerpt. From a legal perspective, it is one of the weakest cases that I have ever seen in my career. There were literally five cells worth of genetic material in the samples from that vial. They said, we're going to amplify that small amount of genetic material so that we can artificially generate enough material to test. And the problem is that the copy is not quite as good. Then you make a copy of the copy. And now you're building an additional defects into it, losing additional quality. Then you make a copy of the copy of the copy. Well, think of that happening in the realm of millions of times. That's what the OCME did in this case to generate artificially enough genetic material to allow it to run the test. What? 
what they got was something called a non-deducible mixture. A mixture from which no deduction can be made. Now, if we think about that logically, wouldn't that be the end of the case? But what the OCME did is they ran it through a statistical analysis and tried, nevertheless, to draw a deduction from it. That statistic is what they use to try to substitute for scientific evidence in this case. And that is what we based taking away this man's freedom. So now, when you think about that, it really is, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. They took, they didn't have enough of a um, genetic basis to go off of. They didn't have a, a, a large enough sample. So what they did was they created the sample because they couldn't get a proper read on it. So they manufactured it. They, they created a sample by making copies of it to get a large enough sample size to feed through their system. And then when they fed it through their system, they got a statistical data report as opposed to a DNA match. And that's what they went off of. And as she said, originally, you can't deduce um, a conclusion based on what they had. So they said, okay, well, being we can't deduce a conclusion, we're going to feed it through the system and now get a statistical report. And how that is allowed in a courtroom, how a judge allows that kind of evidence in, I'll never understand. And, and that's what bothers me is, is you get some of these judges, they're supposed to be there to uphold the law, to uphold justice, and to allow somebody a fair trial. And they make all these decisions that are everything but a fair trial. It's completely against the defendant. And the damage they could do where they could just get their convictions. They could get a conviction. If the judge wants a conviction, they could get it. And the only way it could be undone, the damage could be undone, is if the jury is smart enough to see through it, to see what's going on, and nullify. As I talked about in my prior episodes, that's the only way to undo this kind of injustice. And that rarely happens. Unfortunately, the jurors take the bait. And they go right along with the with the corruption that's taken place. And one final um, excerpt I want to play. It goes back to what I was saying, where if the judge believes it, you know, they hear DNA and they get they get impressed by it, and they automatically assume it's accurate. And I just want to play uh, uh, Donna's um, statement about that. When the judge hears DNA, hears some impressive, sounding statistic, they take that as proof. They take it as unassailable proof. Problem is that the jury doesn't understand it, the judges don't understand it, and therefore they don't understand its limitations, and they don't understand how it can be misused. And, and that's really it in a nutshell, and that and that summarizes what I've been saying. You know, if the jury doesn't understand something, and the judge. The, the, say the judge does understand it but doesn't want it playing out or the judge himself or herself doesn't understand it. it it's limited. It's a problem because they're not understanding the science behind it. They're just going to assume that everything that the prosecution and the government and the state is saying is accurate and they can, can, they're going to convict somebody who's innocent based on this junk evidence, junk science. And, you know, it's happening time and time again, and people aren't realizing it. And what's scary is jurors aren't 
taking notice. And when they're going in and they're being selected for jury duty, they're not understanding what's in front of them and what responsibility they have. And, you know, uh, there was a, uh, a quote from Mark Twain during this show that <laughs> resonated with me where Mark Twain once said that there's three types of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. And the statistics is an important aspect of that. You know, if they're manipulating stats and they're, they're, they're putting in front of jury um, figures that are inaccurate just to sway them to convict, look at the damage that could be done. You know, fortunately, this this case wound up having a a um, a somewhat in one aspect, it had a good outcome because the um, individual was acquitted. Uh, that Herskowitz was acquitted uh, uh, during the appeal. The uh, appellate lawyer, that Donna Aldia, won the appeal, and they actually acquitted him. Uh, they just uh, acquitted the case as if it was as if he got found innocent during the appeal process, but. You know, he said a few things, and and I and I've touched on this. Even though he won, it still cost him time, money, his reputation. He actually lost his marriage during it. Uh, his health dwindled. I mean, he he went through a lot, and he was an innocent person, and all for nothing, all because he was targeted. It all goes back to that targeting, uh, general concept that I talk about time and again. That if you're targeted for whatever reason. Whether it's because, like in this case, there's an influential member of society who pushes it away from them towards somebody else or, or the government just wants to target you as an individual or an agent wants to target you. That's really what it's about. If you're the target, you have a big problem. And the only way we could counteract that is by having intelligent, smart jurors who see through that and start weighing everything and don't buy into what's being sold to them. They need to see the proof. You need to see the evidence and you need to hold on to reasonable doubt. All of those things. Uh, the lawyer in this case, the first lawyer, the trial attorney, the guy Izzy, he, he said he took the case because he said it was riddled with reasonable doubt. But look what happened. His guy got convicted because jurors are not holding on to reasonable doubt. And, and the, the lawyer even said it. He goes, the problem with jurors is they're not going by the evidence. They're convicting people based on how they look, based on how they feel about them, based on reputation. They're not going on the evidence. And that's the huge flaw. And, you know, when people complain things are injustice, the truth is we have no one to blame but the general public, but ourselves. Because if you're not serving the jury pool properly, and you're not on that panel, and you're not seeking justice, and your own... Um, bias and your own discriminations are, are creeping out you, you're gonna really do a disservice you're gonna bring injustice to the forefront because you have the power to undo whatever corruption got that case in front of you so if that case was brought to you with all kinds of smoke and mirrors and all kinds of corruption and all kinds of agendas and you're in the jury you have the position you're in the position of power to undo that you have the ability to make a wrong right. And if you don't, shame on you. That's your obligation when you sign up to serve on the jury. That's your obligation. You know, it's your duty to make sure you go by the facts. You go by reasonable doubt. And unfortunately, time and again, it's not happening. People are being found innocent. And what's, what's 
disheartening and what's frightening almost is that you have all of these things taking place that are not justice, that are not going by the law, but it's agendas that are just looking to get the win, just looking to get that conviction. And how twisted is that? You would figure one, even, you know, you're a prosecutor, you want to at least make sure the person that you're prosecuting is guilty. And when you realize they're not and you still go forward with it and you still try to present things in a way that manipulate the facts, there's something wrong. That person should not be in that position of power like that where they could end somebody's life because of own personal views or vendettas or whatever it may be. That's a problem. You know, that's, that's a, a lack of integrity. And somebody who doesn't have integrity should not be in that position. If you're going to prosecute somebody, you should do it in a lawful way, in a by-the-book way, not where you're you're bending the rules and not where you're manipulating things. And I've spoken about firsthand how I've seen them manipulate transcripts and change words just to fit the narrative. When you enhance it and you have a specialist listen to it, it's complete opposite of what they're trying to say that it says. But they paint it that way for the jury. It's hard to hear. They throw a transcript in front of them with what they want written out in front of them. So when the jury reads along with it, that's what they're going to assume it says. Meanwhile, it doesn't. And those are all tricks. There's nothing else to call those but tricks. Those are tricks to get a conviction. That's all they're doing. That's all they're trying to to do. And that's a major problem. And I'm going to keep talking about that, and I'm going to keep trying to expose certain things and evaluate certain things and dissect certain things. And again, I'm going to say it time and again. This isn't about a soapbox. This isn't about anti-government. This isn't about any of that. This is just about bringing to light justice and just making sure when people are faced with a trial, they get a fair trial like it's supposed to be. And there's nothing wrong with with talking about that and explaining that. We're all, we all have the right to a fair trial. God forbid somebody gets found, finds themselves wrapped up in the justice system. All they're going to want is a fair trial. And that's all you could ask for. And when you have the odds against you that you may not get that, that's frightening. Your life could be over even though you're innocent. All because the system's broken. And that's one thing I'm just hoping that potential jurors and those listeners, it sinks in. Not asking anybody to agree with my personal views or my philosophies. All I want them to do is listen and evaluate the facts and the common sense aspect of this. And the logical aspect on how things should play out. If somebody's guilty, they're guilty. If the facts lead up to them being guilty and they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, then they had their shot in court and that's the way it played out. What I'm talking about is when that doesn't happen. When jurors aren't going by reasonable doubt. When jurors are using their own um, you know, personal views on a defendant to convict them as opposed to the evidence in front of them. When the government is bringing out somebody's past to convict them and somebody's alleged titles to convict them as opposed to the facts and the evidence that's in front of them. That's what the problem is. And that's what I'm going to keep harping on and that's what I'm going to try to dissect and I'm going to try to do different topics. I think things like this are a little, you know, a little interesting where I'll dissect certain shows and segments um, just to break it up a little bit and just to show how far the reach is and how many people are affected by this. And that's the purpose of the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time.